when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, I'm talking to Stephen Yang, the CEO and founder of Anchor. Now, Anchor is one of those companies that's endlessly fascinating to me. Stephen founded it in 2011, and since then, it's turned into a 3,000-person company that operates all over the world by selling phone chargers and battery packs on Amazon. And it's since expanded to other categories like webcams and Bluetooth speakers and smart home products. Along the way, Anchor's pioneered a major advancement in charging technology. You know that little white brick that takes forever to charge an iPhone? It's made using silicon, and it puts out about 5 watts of power. Anchor made a big bet on using a material called gallium nitride, or GAN, and now it has a charger the size of that iPhone brick that can put out 30 watts of power, enough to charge a MacBook Air. It was a big bet and it paid off, and I've always been curious to know how Steven decided to make that bet and how he executed it. Anchor also sits in the middle of a complicated set of politics and platform policies. Smartphone makers are taking the chargers out of phone boxes to save on e-waste, while the EU is considering mandating the USB-C plug to charge phones, even iPhones, which currently use Apple's Lightning connector. And Apple itself strictly limits what accessories can officially connect to its devices under something called the Made for iPhone or MFI program. It also collects fees to participate in that program. At The Verge, we've talked to a lot of accessory makers over the years, and getting kicked out of MFI terrifies them. iPhone accessories are a big market, after all. And of course, there's Amazon. Anchor started its business on Amazon and still sells most of its products on that platform. Steven told me that Anchor has 100 people, or fully 3% of the entire company, dedicated to thinking about managing the Amazon marketplace. And for good reason. This past summer, several of Anchor's competitors were banned from Amazon for breaking the guidelines around fake and paid five-star reviews. So, of course, I had to ask Steven for his views on all of that. That's the full stack of decoder topics. Taking big bets on new technology like Allium Nitride, building a direct-to-consumer business on Amazon and the complexity of managing the Amazon relationship, regulatory issues, platform fees, you name it. And all because of phone chargers. I told you, Anchor is endlessly fascinating. 
Okay, Stephen Yang, the founder and CEO of Anchor Innovations. Stephen Yang, you are the CEO of Anchor Innovations. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you, Eli. It's a pleasure. You and I have talked before. I've interviewed you on the Vergecast. A lot of things have happened since then. That was a, three years ago now. Uh, so a lot to talk about. But for the Decoder audience, let's kind of start at the beginning. Anchor is one of the more successful companies that makes accessories for phones and computers. You've expanded into other categories like soundbars and projectors and, and home goods. Uh, tell us a little bit about Anchor. Where are you located? How many employees do you have? What are your biggest markets? We like to think Anchor as a global company. A large part of us is in China actually working on product development, but there are also hundreds of us everywhere in the world. So we have offices in Seattle, in Los Angeles, in Tokyo, in Australia, uh, Middle East, Southeast Asia, and Europe, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so product-wise, so we um, started from charging, portable chargers. That's almost, you know, the beginning categories. And um, so expanded into everything charging under the Anchor brand. And later we um, added audio into our portfolio. So under the Suncore brand, we have Bluetooth speakers and Bluetooth headsets. From 2017 on, we added Smart Home. So now under the Eufy brand, we have cleaning robots as well as actually uh, home security products. And also we have a smart projector, you know, sub-brand called Nebula. So that's our like three plus one <laughs> brands. How big total is Anchor? How many people? Uh, we're a little bit over 3,000 people now. Just past that. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a big growth from the last time we spoke, right? The company's <laughs> getting a lot bigger. Yes. I hope we are, you know, still keeping that momentum. But actually, yeah, so new categories take a lot of effort to really just, you know, get into and do well in. 3,000 people is, you know, right on the edge of being a pretty big company. How much of your time is spent on products and product development versus now managing all of this stuff, managing remote culture and, you know, international trade policy and things like that? That's actually a great question. And really, I, I spent a lot of thought on that. So I can share a bit of of that. So we are in 15-ish categories till this moment. You know, complexity among the different, you know, categories are just really increasing fast. And also the complexity from multi-countries as well, because we're in like 30, 40-ish countries and increasing as well. So that complexity is increasing too. So if you multiply that, you know, number of category and number of countries together, you know, the complexity becomes really, you know, I would say hard to impossible to be managed by a single person or even a small team, right? And realizing that, like we did much internal discussion and sort of the answer was, there's no way we could just, you know, manage every category and the business in every region. We have to turn our roles from managing to empowering. So essentially just um, build the company as a product, which could empower the people from all over the world 
to actually do the categories, you know, do the regional sales work, do the brand work that they would like to accomplish. So my time actually now is, I would say 80% of my time is spent on this, you know, company as a product rather than individual products. So I was, I was joking, you know, sometimes I, I discover new products in our press release too. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, the other kind of big thing that's happened to Anchor recently, a year ago, you went public on the Chinext stock exchange in Shenzhen. You're a public company CEO now. That changes the job. What has changed for you now running a, a public company? I don't, I think, okay, I think I, I really succeeded in telling myself nothing changed. <laughs> hey, that's a step. Yeah. So I, for me, it's really no difference. We have a, a president DP. He handles all the like, you know, reporting and so on and so forth. So for me, it's like life stays on the same. Right? <laughs> I, I don't check our stock prices. Never, ever, actually. It's not in my, you know, stock app and I've never looked at it. I'm just acting as if like, you know, we're just still the good old days. <laughs> Has going public given you any additional capabilities? Obviously that helps you raise money. It gives you new audiences. It provides avenues for growth. What are the benefits of going public then? Um, I think we're, you know, again, getting more popular in the China market as well. Going listed in there actually definitely helped us to, you know, just raise up the awareness part. And also in terms of recruiting, that helped as well. Because people now understand that this is, hey, oh, this is a listed company instead of a company that I don't know <laughs> where it's coming <laughs> from. Because, you know, anecdotally, uh, we're actually much more well-known <laughs> probably out of China than in China, right? So That's really interesting. Let's talk about the actual business. How much of the business is still selling chargers and accessories and how much is the Eufy home products or the Soundcore products, things like that? The non-charging part is growing faster than charging. And last year, charging was already like less than 50%. So this year, probably around 40-ish percent are charging. And then we have, I think around 30-ish percent in audio slightly less than 30%, and then a little bit more than 30% in um, smart home products. It's almost like 333. So charging, audio, and then um, smart home. Let's start with charging. I have to because we are literally talking on the day that the European Union proposed that everything be USB-C, including the iPhone. You have been on the the front lines of USB-C for years what do you make of that announcement that the the European Union is going to mandate this charging standard? We welcome that. We really welcome that, right? So it's when we met the first time. I think it's 2017 or 18. I think it was 18. We're in that room actually talking about how USB-C is going to take over the world and how people are going to really just you know use a single charger uh, to charge all of the devices and how you know. Because of that, we're going to save like 300,000 tons of e-waste um, every year. Gladly, actually, over the years, we're seeing this becoming true year after year, right? So last year, Apple decided to take you know, the inbox chargers out. And this year, actually, European Union is pushing that you know, envelope even more. And you know, in China, there's um, regulations being established to 
enforce that you know the chargers, the protocols are interchangeable as well. So I think this is becoming like a really common sense or like you know a common practice to really just have interchangeable chargers to feed all our consumer electronics products, which is which is super. Apple doesn't have chargers in the box. Samsung doesn't have chargers in the box anymore. There is this sort of international regulatory pressure. We should talk about e-waste, but I'm curious from nuts and bolts level, no chargers in the box. Does that mean you're selling more chargers? Yeah, a lot more. Because <laughs> um, the chargers is actually a new category for a lot of users. Because for this users, previously, there was no category such as a charger because they just get whatever is coming from the device and they just use that. They don't just you know buy a charger by themselves. So now, as there's no longer box, chargers in the box, per our survey, about 50% of them still like just you know rely, go back to, to use their old chargers. Because, I mean, over the years, they've saved some, right? But more and more people start to really just shop and, you know, individual ones. Of course, a large fraction of them will go to the device brand, right? For example, they'll go to buy an Apple charger or a Samsung charger. But still... Um, that gives us a chance as a third-party charger brand to reach them and to really just, you know, inform them on the superiority of our charger. You know, the small size, the high power, the durability, as well as the ability to just, you know, charge devices from all the brands well. This is kind of the e-waste question, right? The idea was we're going to stop putting the chargers in the box. You probably have a charger already. You probably have already had a phone. You might still have a charger, we mandate or otherwise get the manufacturers to take the charger out of the box. The idea is you're going to use your existing charger and we're going to save the e-waste. But you're saying consumers are responding to this by buying a lot more chargers. Do you think that there's been a meaningful effect on e-waste? Well, first of all, when there's no chargers in the box, that's already a lot of savings. Okay. Right. And then um, let's say... For 100 people, we saved 100 charges already. And then a large fraction of them, again, per survey will be like 50% or even more. So they'll just, you know, buy nothing more. But then um, there are still like, you know, a fraction of them, especially the chargers that they have were like, you know, slow charging chargers. You're, the, the classic Apple charger is yes, like a 5-watt yes, yes. slow charging charger. Yes. And... We learned about, you know, the fast charging through PD, which could, you know, charge your phone 50% in less than 30 minutes. That's really practical and that's really helpful in our daily lives, right? So you, when it's not coming in box, you've got to get it somewhere. So you go online, you either shop the Apple charger or you can come to Anchor and get an Anchor charger. We're just like a fraction of the, the size of an Apple charger. So some people come to us for that, you know, sort of efficiency. Do you think that, you know, if it's 50% now, do you think the next phone generation, that percentage will be lower because they have a high quality anchor charger at home already? Yeah. I think over time that percentage will go lower because people already get, you know, charges, hopefully get equipped with anchor chargers in different, you know, life occasions or scenarios that they need to use their charger on. So they could happily skip the, you know, the buy charger part and just enjoy their devices. Do you see a shift towards USB-C 
from USB-A, which was the old rectangle connector, towards the new USB-C connector and people are buying new chargers? Yeah, like our USB-A cable volume was like flat or even dropped a little bit. And USB-C cables volume was increasing very fast. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about gallium nitride, the new material enabling smaller chargers, and how Anchor has positioned itself as a market leader with that technology. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back with Stephen Yang. The last time we talked in 2018, you were very excited about gallium nitride. Yep. GAN, which replaces silicon in chargers. It can allow you to provide more power and smaller form factors. That's why your chargers can be smaller. At the time, that seemed like a key enabling technology for that entire market. And several years later, has it played out the way you think it should have? Yeah, we sold a lot of GAN chargers already in the past years, few years, right? And then we launched the second generation, we call them GAN2, earlier this year. So you can now do 65 watt in, a, again, very small cubic space as well. We're about actually to launch GAN3 next year, which will bring the size even smaller. And to get the power rating higher as well. So as you probably could see, like devices are becoming like, you know, more power hungry and charging at a higher speed. So phones 10 years ago was like five watt, right? Later it was 10 and Apple has brought it up to 20. 
and the other you know android brand has brought it up to like 40 to 60 watt i think talking about wattage is like a not customer friendly approach right so <laughs> uh talking about charging time so the charge time used to be like three hours ish so it's been brought down to like one hour and 20 minutes ish with the 20 watt and then um to about 30 to 40 minutes with the 40 to 60 watt and there are even like more sort of you know adventurous brand doing like 120 watt which would get the phone you know fully charged in less than 20 minutes and so that's on the phone side and you're seeing that sort of you know that competition going on and you know the phone manufacturers really just you know sort of escalating on that you know charging power rating and then you know reducing the ch- the charging time and that same competition has been you know moving to laptops too like superbooks it used to be like 30 watt so now it's ramping up to you know 45 60 you know, and up as well. And gaming books, like, again, that power rating were all, like, going up. So this year, for the, like, you know, dual port product we announced, it was, like, mostly 65 watt or up to 90 watt, and we feel that's enough. But looking forward, we feel the multi-port product would probably have to be, like, 150 watt or 200 watt or even 250 watts because it would have to support, like, for example, a 60 watt phone. Like a hundred twenty watt like laptop, and yeah, yeah, a few other things that's quickly adding up to two hundred. So, at this power rating, you really need gallium nitride to reduce the size of that charger. Because I'm not sure if you remember, you know, the chargers, the adapter that's coming with with the gaming laptops, the big bricks, the huge bricks, <laughs> the huge bricks. Yeah. yeah, that was like you know two hundred watt ish, right? You don't want to carry that two hundred watt brick everywhere. So with gallium nitride, we can just make two hundred watt in a very small fraction of that size. So gallium nitride is this key enabling technology. It hit the market three ish years ago. You're already talking about the third generation. Is that something that you have to invest engineering resources in? Is there a supplier pipeline? Is there a material science pipeline? How do you manage that investment? Anchor was the first to actually introduce, you know, gallium nitride on consumer electronics charging. And the way we're able to do that was actually we partnered with the, you know, the frontier chipset manufacturers who actually developed the gallium nitride, you know, charging chip. And then um, we're almost there alpha customer or the first customer. So when the first when the ship is first developed, a lot of effort, a lot of you know hops you have to jump through to actually really just make it into a product. And these are not entirely material science knowledges, but like you know, application knowledge, system architecture knowledge, knowledge about you know managing heat and other things. Right. So it's almost like a system effort. I think we sort of accumulate knowledge in that end. And then just couple that together with, you know, the gallium nitride, you know, chipset manufacturer to just together build it into products. You're seeing the GAN 2 this year at that size, um, the, you know, the 65 watt size and the 30 watt size. We've been working with actually um, Power Innovations PI for actually almost a year on that. You know, it's the latest generation. It's a the brand new generation of GAN chips. And um, it's unique as well. So we launched GAN 2 mid of this year. 
So 65 watt size was like, again, a fraction of the competition now. The reason we're able to do that was actually based on Power Innovation's latest or the new, newest generation of GAN chip. So we've been the sole partner for almost a year developing that. So you'll not be seeing similar products like at least three to six months coming you know, from other brands because we're just working together solely. So you had like an exclusive relationship to yeah. bring up yeah. the next generation GAN chipset. You, have, you get that window. Three to yeah. six months later, other people can buy that chipset. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about chipsets. All of your businesses have chips in them. Yep. We spent a lot of time on this show talking about the chip shortage. Yep. How impacted by the chip shortage are you? A lot. It's like fire every day. <laughs> Different fire <laughs> every day. <laughs> so, yeah. And especially, <laughs> we were, we've gone through it through a whole year. <laughs> you become... I don't know. You've got, okay, all right. So it's fine. <laughs> a new fire. Let's go put it off. <laughs> Where is the biggest impact win? Uh, we really have you know different product lines, and in general, the biggest challenge is coming from chipsets that's made by the eight-inch wafers because mm-hmm. eight-inch wafers are sort of outdated technology but still used by a lot of chips, right? And 12-inch supplies are increasing and, you know, and really not that scarce. But the challenge is when you shift a chipset to be manufactured by 8-inch to, you know, 12-inch, you have to go through a lot of qualification processes, almost like, you know, re-verifying that product again. But different industries actually take different effort or like different cycles to verify that their products. So I think the car industry, right, they obviously take the, the longest time. They probably t- need to take a year or two years to verify, or even like three years to five years to verify a chipset. Because of that, you know, huge shifting cost. So the, you know, the eight inch wafer like capacity was largely, you know, reserved for them. And the consumer electronics category, which Again, still we need to verify that you know transition, but it's just relatively shorter time, right? A month or two months rather than like you know two years, right? So we are like you know asked to to do the shift more. So it's a lot of verification work going on, you know, throughout the whole year. But yeah, I think that's that's you know just response social responsibility, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes up on maybe every episode of the show, so I'm always curious. Cool. There are some technologies that seem like they will enable new capabilities, and then there are some things that seem like they're just going to hold us back forever. Apple famously has the MFI program made for iPhone. Even in Anchor's product line, other product lines, I see there are wireless chargers that have Apple's chip in them that enable faster charging. And there are products that look exactly the same without that certification that charge slower. That has to be so frustrating. Tell me how you're dealing with MFI. Tell me, is that just the state of things or is there a push and pull with Apple? How does that go? I think we can certainly see, you know, what, where it's coming from and why, you know, Apple needs that. If you look at the market, there's just a whole lot of like non-MFI cables out there which are just really harmful to your device. Like there are cables which you can get five lightning cables for $5. 
or even less. Mm-hmm. And this actually do fry your phones. <laughs> <laughs> With that, you know, sort of authentication chip in the MFI, you know, module. So at least customers could be informed if this is a, you know, authentic Apple cable or not. But I think there could be potential other ways to, you know, to, to solve the same problem by, for example, by really enforcing just universal standard of actually how you should make a cable. I think when the, you know, the universal standard is up, then you no longer need that much of a proprietary standard. But there's always like a push and pull because they also need to have a lot of like, you know, effort involved in, you know, building a universal standard and enforcing it too. So, so far, I think we're looking up to that, but, you know, we're really not seeing that much of work happening. I tell this joke on my other show, The Verge Cast, all the time. I am an absolute sucker for car chargers. <laughs> Every time I see one, I buy, it's real bad. I'm, I am the entire Instagram advertising economy. <laughs> Apple has a new standard called MagSafe, magnetic charging system for their phones. Yep. There is not, as far as I can tell, a great MFI MagSafe car charger, an Apple-approved fast-charging car charger that like mounts to your car and you can clip your phone in. Why is that? Again, Apple has high standard, right? And I think coupling, you know, the heated environment in the car with actually, you know, the wireless devices being, you know, heated while working as well, I think that could be a challenge. But, you know, we'll solve it soon, hopefully, sometime. Right? That's a promise. Or, or somebody, solve it soon? No, 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 or somebody else. <laughs> or somebody. Are you working on one? Um, I don't know, because, again, I, I was telling you, I, I'm discovering, you know, our products through that's what it's too, right? Oh, man, you came in. That's a ready-made dodge from the question. <laughs> you set yourself up. Hey, it's Neil. Since we recorded, Anchor has released some chargers that use the magnets in the iPhone, including a car charger, but they're not MFI. They just use the magnets in standard Qi charging. We went back and asked Anchor for a statement, and they sent back this quote from Stephen. Here it is. While I can't comment on Apple's MFI certification program, I will say that with the new MagGo lineup, Anchor is making a major move into magnetic charging products and accessories. With each of our six new products, there is a stronger focus on color, material choices, and industrial design. This is the future of Anchor, giving consumers products that combine the world's most advanced charging technology with designs that complement the consumer's unique style. There you have it. All right, back to the interview. I want to switch to, you know, enabling technologies. There is USB 4, there's Thunderbolt 4. There are new connections and standards in the market. Is that stuff that impacts your business? Because you're not necessarily in control of those standards, right? But you have you see them coming. How do you plan for them? So interestingly, uh, we are like, again, the first partner to work with Intel to bring like a Thunderbolt 4 <laughs> docking stations to the market as well. Oh, that's great. I think, you know, brands really like they, they, they see Anchor as a trustworthy and also efficient developer on the new technologies. So that's why, you know, chipset manufacturers come to us and technology enablers come to us as well. So we're happy to really just, you know, be the bridge between that, you know, new technology and the audiences, the, the, the customer base. Do you think the Thunderbolt 4 stuff is going to get cheaper? Is that 
it's been pretty high end so far. Is it going to get more mainstream? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you look at, look at Gallum Nitride, right? So our first 30 watt was like, you know, I don't know, $30. And it's getting cheaper over the years quickly. So I think Thunderbolt, you know, it's hopefully the same thing too. That's always, the, you know, the, the law of magnitude, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you were talking about five charging cables for $5 and different ways to solve that problem of cheap cables that might actually fry your phone. It seems like one of the, the biggest actors in that ecosystem is Amazon because Amazon will list those cheap products right next to yours, right next to the licensed products. A lot of your presence in the United States, at least, is Amazon still. What is that relationship like? Has it changed over the years? Is that still the primary retail channel for you? Are you trying to diversify? Amazon's still more than half of our business. Um, well, actually, really just to become a brand, we'd hope to be omni-channel as well. So today, actually, you'll be able to find anchoring um, all the major like retail channels, Costco, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Verizon, and so on and so forth. So I think we're just you know reaching that goal of becoming like really the you know your go-to charging brand, which is omni-channel. So when talking about you know counterfeit or like you know these fake products, I think Amazon has taken a lot of effort to just you know to work on that. It's just too much of that because under the procedure you have to test by, you have to send it to a lab, and then you have to get you know the certification, and then you, you can do something. So. That takes time. And yeah, I think it's it's like a cat and mouse game that's um, like, you know, forever. Yeah. We just saw a wave of uh, your competitors like Rav Power and Showtech and other brands that were kind of competing directly with you get kicked off of Amazon for gaming the review system, for asking for reviews from people who hadn't bought products on Amazon is that a game that you have tried to play? Is that something you've totally avoided? Is that just a risk of participating in that ecosystem? We always tell like um, our friends that our chargers are not the same as actually you know chargers from some of the brands that you mentioned, right? So if you tear them apart, if you send them you know through testing you know uh, facilities, you you really see that these chargers are not the same, especially in terms of like you know durabilities and safety. So like 10 years ago, we started, you know, selling on Amazon. So the first thing we read was like the Amazon community policy. It's a three pages, four pages, like document, which describe a lot of things that you can't do. But also for you know, some, it could be the ways to make quick money. Yeah. Right. So um, for us, we really aim to build a long-lasting business. So we just made very sure that, you know, we, we stay off and we don't do anything that's forbidden in this community policy. So, you know, I can't talk about others, but that's how, you know, I sort of asked my team to do. When we talk to other sellers who participate in Amazon, and there's lots of ways to participate in Amazon, but the pressure to get good reviews and stay high in the rankings is real. How does that pressure impact you and how you think about your business? It really totally depends on how you direct that pressure. If you direct that towards your sales department and say, hey, you guys have to get good reviews for products, <laughs> you get bad results, right? 
But if you direct that towards your product team, towards like your product managers, your like, you know, quality engineers. So from the first days on, like we analyze our reviews and just, you know, pick out and summarize, you know, the major points that customers are not happy with and try very hard to work on either fixing it or build a new product that fix it. Right. So just by fixing issues and build better products and to get better reviews, that's how, you know, we've been taking that review pressure for the past 10 years. It's becoming like really just, you know, a core of this company. (laughs) It's, you know, driven by, you know, good review. But recently we also realized that, you know, that approach had (laughs) cons as well. Because when you look at, you know, brand new categories, categories that are so like new and so adventurous that, you know, the reviews are just, it's very hard to get like 4.5 star reviews, right? If you focus on reviews too much in the beginning, you actually sort of reframe yourself from making uh, big innovations. So now we're trying to balance a little bit to say, hey, you know, for this product that's already there, our product team has to deliver a product that has you know great reviews but for some you know brand new categories that nobody else have worked on it's okay to say have an you know improving review through different generation of products what's a product category you've entered where you've been willing to take that risk and focus on improvement the newer ones like for example conference speakers yes we did speakers before but we didn't you know do conference speakers the first model we put to the market was like, at the beginning, it was like 3.8, 3.9-ish. But then the team, you know, quickly sort of worked on, collected the feedbacks because we tested in different scenarios, but they're always like, you know, the consumer scenarios we didn't have the chance to test. And the good thing with that is, you know, there could be software updates. You just sort of fine-tune the algorithms to shift some, you know, metrics or some like, you know, parameters to, to fix the problems. So, yeah, that review rating got to be 4.5-ish very soon. I have to ask, because I'm a product reviewer, Yeah. do you pay attention to the professional reviewers as much as the Amazon reviews? Do you pay more, less attention, more attention? How does that play out? Surely, actually, more attention, because um, you guys see just many more products, right? So it's not only like we read through the, <laughs> the articles, you guys write, but also, um, again, through sort of the regular communication channels where hopefully to get, you know, more feedback. So we're not able to be just, you know, putting the article. Yeah, we'll see you guys very importantly. <laughs> no, you don't have to, it's fine. It's, some people tell me that we don't matter anymore at all. Like I, when you have that kind of real-time feedback from Amazon, I, I've always been curious. I think it's like two ends, right? One is about the quality of the review. One is about the, the volume of the review, the quantity of the review, right? So we get, you know, 10 or 20 or 40 people talking about the same point that also weighs something as well. We see a lot of gamification in Amazon reviews. Competitors will leave negative reviews. Companies are trying to encourage their customers to leave positive reviews. Has that impacted you on the platform? Do you see that as a risk? Is that something you guard against to have process there? So again, like when we say we really abide by the community policies, that means we don't sort of improve our reviews by incentivizing them, or actually 
we don't, you know, try to use reviews to sabotage others as well. But others are doing that to you. Do you see that happening to you? Yes, we do see that. For example, like all of a sudden, like the reviews, the top reviews that you know on a listing, all become like you know negative reviews because a lot of people clicked on this uh, negative reviews to say helpful, right? Well, wow. a lot of them would click on helpful, like the reviews, you know, those negative reviews got to be moved to the top. But I think Amazon was again doing a increasingly better job at identifying this. Because if you look at, well, I'm an algorithm guy. <laughs> you know, I, I worked on algorithms early on in my career, so I I strongly believe that it's easy to actually fight this fear algorithms. There's so many signals you can collect from these behaviors to really tell that these are abnormal behaviors. For example, like a hundred or two hundred people, like or even four hundred people coming in in this week and clicking on this several. Like re- negative review and saying these are helpful, right? These <laughs> are definitely abnormal behaviors, and you just have to find ways to filter them out. But the better thing would, could be that you know you can find the the source of them, because likely they are not doing it only to your product, but doing it to someone else's product and someone else's product, right? Because again, the cost of creating the fake accounts, if you make that cost to be high enough. Because any sort of you know mechanism has a has an ROI, right? Return on investment. If you make the return you know sort of low enough and the investment high enough, that game quickly lose you know the interest and people would, would just you know move away away from that. And that's what we're seeing you know what Amazon's doing as well. You're the CEO of a three thousand person company. You obviously have spent a lot of time thinking about Amazon. How many people at Anchor? Spend time thinking about Amazon and its policies. Uh, we have actually a team called Online Sales Organization, um, which is our you know our only team working um, on Amazon, and that's about hundred people globally. So you can say yes, about three percent of this company, hundred people out of three thousand people are you know just thinking mainly about Amazon. The reason I ask that tracks with other people I talk to who run businesses on platforms. Yep. So I talk to YouTube creators. They spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about YouTube and its policies. We talk to Instagram influencers. They spend a lot of time thinking about Instagram. You run a hardware company. You're, you're running partnerships to launch Intel chipsets exclusively. And yet you have the exact same kind of platform dynamic with Amazon is Doug Demuro, who runs a car review channel on YouTube. Is that a dynamic you want to change? Do you have leverage to change it? Is that just the way it's going to be? Is that do you talk to Amazon about it? I'm not sure. Actually, I entirely agree with that. Dynamics as the same as you know YouTube or actually Instagram, right? Because it takes a whole lot more effort to just build a hardware product. Again, six months, twelve months, or even eighteen months, versus actually maybe just doing content, right? But I think. The similar thing that you know we all share would be that you know the product is still the, the king there. I always tell the company, hey, you know, the product is the one, and everything else are the zeros. Right. So if you get you know everything else right and you have a crappy product, so <laughs> that's nothing. Right. So so yeah, that's what 
I strongly believe. And then when you get good products, when you get products that truly benefit your customers, I think that relationship, you know, with the channels, with, you know, the platform becomes benevolent, right? Becomes mutually beneficial. Is that how you see your relationship with Amazon now? It's benevolent? Yeah. For the past 10 years, we've seen this relationship as, as you know, benevolent, mutually beneficial because Amazon gives us the opportunity to just, you know, sell directly to the customers. On the other end, because of that quick feedback loop, we're able to build better products and benefit customers as well. One of the things that sometimes makes that relationship not benevolent with Amazon is they are somewhat notorious, at least in the United States, for taking data about what shoppers are buying and then making their own products. Is that something you've experienced that Amazon has come out with an Amazon Basics version of one of your chargers or your soundbars or something like that? Yeah, I think that's a story with all the channels, right? If you look at Warma, look at Costco, so every channel has a channel, <laughs> channel has their channel brands. And that has been there for decades, right? It's not a new, you know, story. So what we've observed was that the percentage of the channel brands has a ceiling. And for different categories, that ceiling was different. So for sort of, you know, tech categories, because it's always, you know, advancing, always like innovating, right? So it's a whole lot more difficult to make channel brands. Is that something they come to you to do? I, I don't think Amazon has a bunch of engineers thinking about gallium nitride. Do they come to you and say, hey, we want to make a Amazon branded USB accessory and you do it for them? Is that the, are you doing that kind of work or is that a different set of companies? We're still debating about that because the teams are, are different, right? To be working on like a regular product versus a anchor standard product. So I would say not, not up to this moment yet. We need to take one more break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other businesses that Anchor is in and what it's been like to not only create user experiences, but also create products that need to be supported with software updates. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This week on The Pitch, we're back to pitches. And this one's coming from my job. What Podcast AI does is it lets podcast producers become 10 times more productive. How much are you charging The Pitch? <laughs> we're charging $99. And Josh came in right before we doubled our prices. Mm -hmm. 
What's keeping something like a restream from just going like, yep, we do all this AI now stuff too? So there's a lot of these older companies that are tacking on AI, mm -hmm. and that's kind of the issue. They're tacking it on. You built this really quickly. What's to stop anybody else from doing this? What's, what's the moat? How do you build a moat when you're building with AI? That's this week on The Pitch. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back. I want to talk about the other categories here and real quickly before we end. Chargers are, they're important. We, I think about them a lot, obviously. We obviously think about USB a lot. But they're, in their way, they don't require a lot from the user, right? You plug them in, you plug in your phone, you're done. That's yep. it. Yep. The other categories you're in have user experience concerns, yep. right? Yep. Soundbars have buttons and interfaces, projectors. How many user interface designers do you have now? How many software engineers do you have now? I haven't really counted, but I think we have like a dozen or so user interface developers and probably 100-ish app developers or, or possibly more, yeah, but at least that number. So we definitely realize that the software part or the app part of experience is now a major part. For example, actually, for a headset, we developed this technology called Hear ID, which in five minutes, it takes you through a set of tests, which it plays different you know, frequency sound and try to test your feedback. And with that, they can just really augment a part of your, you know, the audio spectrum to let you get better music. So think of it as a, a very miniature piece of, of a, you know, audio amplifier. So that part entirely relies on a phone app but it greatly enhances your listening experience. Our users, you know, tried this, love this feature. So we're trying to develop more and more of this. So not just only a, a hardware company, but more like a hardware software company. Once you start making software, the lifecycle cost of a product goes up. So you sell me a charger once, you don't have to have a software engineer updating the app for the charger in the app store for the rest of time. You sell me a set of earbuds that have a cool software feature. That app has to get updated for iOS 15. That app has to get updated for iOS 16. How long do you think the software features should be supported for? Like, How do you manage that investment? Well, I think the original point we think about is still customer value. So if that software part really adds enough value for you that you feel necessary or you feel good, then I think there's got to be a way to get numbers right. So for the headphone products, for example, over the years, you're seeing that, you know, the SoundCore brand headphones, the price points raising, not only actually from the software part, but also from, you know, more advanced hardware and design and so on and so forth. But we started like at $99-ish, and now our most expensive headsets has been $149. And we're actually, again, if more innovative products come out, which carries more, better hardware feature and, you know, and more software, you know, features as well. So that price point could go up a bit. But eventually the customers have to be willing to pay, right? If we raise the price, but people just, you know, walk away, then that's not something right. This is an intentionally impossible to answer question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. 
in that dynamic, what is more important? Is it the software experience or is it the hardware experience? Um, I always see myself as a gray scale guy. <laughs> so you know, I'm not a zero guy or one guy, right? So I did my education in software, had my early career in software, but now have been working on hardware for 10 years. I think I see beauty in both disciplines. Sometimes, you know, the engineers from the two disciplines hate each other, right? <laughs> or look down upon each other. But I'm really trying to <laughs> unite them together and say, hey, it's not that, you know, you are more important or you are more important, right? It's like together you guys deliver this great experience that it's so smooth that customers don't really just think about, hey, this is a software experience or hardware experience. But they just, you know, they just benefit from it. So that's a point that I'm trying to, you know, to reach, to strike. When you think about great software design, we think about the great companies. We think about Apple, we think about Google. To some extent, we think about Facebook, although lots of arguments to be made there. Do you think you've attracted the sort of talent to compete with the giants in terms of software design, execution, all those things? We don't do like mass scale software, right? We don't do a, you know, app that serves like a billion people each day. So that's a much easier problem. (laughs) (laughs) But also on the other end, actually, that dictates that we don't get as good people as, you know, this giants. I think, you know, sufficient is probably the word or the way. And also increasingly more complicated. So you have to have, you know, people that's sufficient for the job. And then as, you know, the complexity sort of, you know, raises, they're able to grow together with the challenges. And that's actually a very happy state, right? You don't get stressed too much and you enjoy your growth. One of the other things we see, particularly with, you know, hardware software solutions that connect to phones, both platforms are relentlessly integrating everything. Headphones is actually a great example, right? Apple has integrated custom software into the OS to enable AirPods to do things that is far as I know, no one else is allowed to do on iOS. Google made its own headphones. They're doing the same trick. Samsung is doing the same trick. That's going to extend to all kinds of categories. Is that a risk that you're hedging against in any way? Is there a European Union actually enforcing on the interchangeable standard? The European Union can say it's doing anything. <laughs> whether that means anything, whether <laughs> they actually do anything is one question. Whether it means anything is another. Yeah. I, I'm just wondering, like, that's a risk, right? That the platform will sort of relentlessly integrate. Yeah, you don't even have to ascribe it motive. That's just what platforms and computers do over time. They just sort of integrate every function. How do you think about that risk? You should have to first accept it, right? Because when uh, phone manufacturers start to do innovation, I think it's natural that actually they, you know, they start from their own devices and their own operating systems, right? But if it's really like something that's useful, I still see like, you know, the humankind has <laughs> a good one, right? People are able to just, <laughs> you know, sit together, <laughs> sit down together and really talk about how we make this to become a standard. So that that's what we've, you know, seeing as, you know, innovate first, you know, maybe prioritarily, and then later sort of to make them become, become standard. So there's a gap. It's a time gap, right? Are you in the standards bodies now? Are you in the USB forum, the, the Bluetooth standards organization, all that stuff? 
I think we're a member and we're not in the decision body yet, but we're, we're definitely, you know, hoping to get into it because we, we carry a lot of consumer feedbacks and we're able to fastly take ideas to the market and prove it. So we definitely hope to be able to contribute in there. One of the products I recently bought was a, a, one of your Nebula capsule projectors. It's really fun, right? It's like a couple hundred bucks. It's as big as a little speaker. It's got a, a projector in it. It runs Android. I think that's your first full-on Android product where you've brought up an operating system and customized it, and you're in the Play Store, and you can get various apps on it. That seems really new, but it seems like you have a lot of products in that line now. Was that easy to do? Was Google just like ready to, to let you launch a new kind of product? Or was it something you had to convince them to let you do? Yeah, I think it did take us a while to convince Google to have the Android TV right deployed on that and in this custom interface as well. But I think that's worth the while because, again, it's small soda can-sized projectors, right? And you can just take them with you anywhere. And the good thing is that you can just leave your phone or just still play with your phone, but have that, you know, sort of Android that's on the projector, you know, doing all the, you know, projecting or, and the content streaming work. So, yeah, I think we, we just need to add that capability to our box and being able to just build products however they should be. Well, I ask because that's your first standalone product that runs an operating system that's owned by somebody else that you have to maintain on the spectrum, chargers are all the way over here. Yep. Sell them once and walk away. Yep. Yep. Bluetooth soundbars with an app that might change some settings are in the middle. Yep. And I'm selling you an Android computer is all yep. the way at the end. Yep. In yep. terms of how much relationship you have to have with your customer. Yep. When you're doing that process document and the committees are checking in, at some point are you like, well, we're going to have to invest in Android updates for this $400 projector forever. And do you think about how you'd monetize it over that course of time? Like, what does that kind of decision look like? I think, first of all, like Google does a great job in terms of updating the Android TV once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> a great job once in a while is very accurate. <laughs> it's like they take all the, the you know, the, the hard work and, and we just, you know, package it, of course, to make sure it doesn't crash our UI interfaces, right? And then streamlined to the customers. It's about like a team of like 30, 40 engineers. We're really seeing as it as an investment into the future, right? So when you have products that's more complicated, that, you know, standalone operating sort of, you know, system level capability is something you must have. And for Anchor, we always stand behind our products. So we have to make sure the ones that actually released is a really, you know, quality one, right? So that's an investment, then that's an investment. Is that the kind of decision that comes all the way up to you? Hey, we want to make a product that's going to require five years of ongoing like software engineering investment? Or is that you're going to let them see what happens? Yeah, that's a decision that will come to the top of this company. So we have an investment board that's overseeing all the major investment, things that's above $2 million, as well as things that's going to you know cost us a few years. So, yeah, for these decisions, we have to make. But also, on the other hand, we see them as not just as a one-time thing, right, or one-product thing. 
Because if you look at, again, company as a product, capabilities, when it's built, could be applied towards different product lines. That's a capability. For example, the Android system capability is something that you know we see them as a capability that's needed for the longer-term future. So um, when we divide, decide to invest in it, um, hopefully it's not you know on this single product, but it could be deployed on more products. Are you going to make a phone? No, no, no. We we will definitely stay off that. <laughs> we'll definitely stay off that <laughs> playground. So, um, well, you know, I have an analogy on that. So, if you look at all the consumer electronics subcategories, if you count from the biggest one down, right, the first one you have cell phone, one point five billion of them each year, about three hundred ish dollars average selling price. So that's a five hundred billion dollar business each year. And the next, you have laptop, which is a $200 billion business. Laptop and PC, okay. And the third, it quickly comes down to tablets, right? That's a 60 to $70 billion business. And then next one, you have smart watches and then wireless headsets. These are like, you know, 40-ish billion dollars and, you know, but still increasing. So... Have you observed that, you know, from number one to number five, you actually dropped from $500 billion to $50 billion. It's a 10 times scale, just from number one to number five, right? So that's what we call, you know, on the big categories, um, there's very few of them, a handful of them. But on the other end, if you look at the smaller categories, like let's say a $5 billion category, Portable chargers, chargers, wireless chargers, cables, hubs, docking stations. I'm already counting six or seven. Yeah. And that's just a very small fraction, right? If you're counting conference speakers and other and everything. So we really literally counted like hundreds of small categories. That's each like, you know, $3 billion, $5 billion in size around this range, right? So Anchor is really trying to focus on the small categories, rather than, you know, the, the biggest categories. Because we end up realizing that, you know, to do well in these two extremes, you need different company formations and different, you know, underlining, you know, mechanisms and different team structures. So with our team structure, we can do, you know, the small categories well. And let's not, you know, <laughs> go die in the big categories. What is the next sort of thing you can do with Android? So, for example, like a conference station, because right now, with our personal conference, we're talking about like owing one stations, which, for example, have the camera, the you know microphone, the you know the speaker, the charging, you know, and even a, maybe a screen in there, right? And for this, you have to have a system that's backing it up. So, uh, and Android will be the natural choice. Yeah. What's next for Anchor? What's the next thing we should be looking at for as we watch the company? Yeah, we added, you know, uh, two to three new categories this year and that, you know, soon you'll be seeing new products coming out. Like one thing that we had was Anchor Work, which is a bunch of performance and utility enhancement, you know, tools and products. And also we started working on Anchor Make, which is products related to, you know, to 3D printing and very small scale manufacturing tools so these are the you know the two things we've been (laughs) working on and 
you've already seen some part of the Anchor Work products, and the Anchor Make will probably coming out sometime next year. That's terrific. Well, Stephen, you've given me much more time than you promised. So I really appreciate it. Always great to talk to you. You're gonna you're gonna have to come back again soon. We seem to have you know endless topics. So. <laughs> I could do another hour on USB, <laughs> USB-C. Let's do it. No, no. You got time? No, I've got to run. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Stephen. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> Thanks again to Stephen Yang for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, leave us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton Simone, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. We are edited by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.